Hey friends, this is Linda, and you're listening to Calling Water, where we study a passage of scripture to figure out both what it means and what it might call us to do. In today's episode, You Are the Man, we're continuing the story of David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapter 12, and how he finally comes to terms with the sins he had committed in secret and the repercussions thereof. Let's begin. In the previous episode, we looked at the story of all the crimes David had committed in pursuit of Bathsheba to not only satisfy his lust, but to cover up one wrong after another. He not only had a woman brought to him by force, but eventually had her husband murdered and made it look like it happened in the line of duty. The text doesn't show that he felt any remorse of what he had done, only relief that his cover-ups were successful. Or so it seemed, anyway. Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 27 says outright that the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Which begs the question, which thing, God? He did so many things, none of them good. And ironically, it would be David himself who provides the answer to this question. 2 Samuel chapter 12 begins with the prophet Nathan being sent by God to confront David about his multitude of sins. Despite the fact that he was somewhat of a trusted advisor of sorts and a highly respected man, Nathan was essentially risking his life by going to face David. Because kings in those days absolutely did shoot the messenger, so to speak. So Nathan sagely decides to not do it head on. Instead, he says he wants to tell the king a story about an occurrence somewhere in the kingdom. See, there was a rich man who owned lots of sheep and cattle, and a poor man with just one lamb he treated like a member of the family. When the rich man had a guest over, instead of using one of his own sheep, the rich man stole the poor man's lamb to prepare a meal for his guest. Upon hearing the story, David is incensed. He is immediately enraged. He doesn't even know the specifics of where this happened, who these people are. It doesn't even matter. For all he knows, he could be indicting a member of his own court, but he doesn't care. The crime Nathan lays out is so evil that David says this in verses 5 through 6. As surely as the Lord lives, The man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Now that's some reaction, David. Now I've never had a pet unless you count a goldfish I once won at a carnival that lived all of three days maybe. So this story doesn't quite have the same effect for me. Sure, I think the rich man in the story is an awful person, but it doesn't evoke the same rage that it did for David because David used to be a shepherd. He knows all about what it takes to raise sheep. He knows the panic when one of his sheep goes missing. He knows the pain of having to slaughter one of his own. I mean, he wrote an entire psalm that compared God to a shepherd, which is imagery that is used throughout scripture. Psalm 23 tells us that a sheep with a shepherd lacks nothing because the shepherd leads, guides, protects, comforts, and provides. 
And this story is perfectly relatable to David, and he can see exactly why this rich man's actions are despicable, because as a former shepherd, it's unheard of. He himself would never have done such a thing. But he had. Because as soon as he unleashes his fury towards this make-believe rich man, Nathan calls him out right away. You are the man. And nowadays, a phrase like you're the man is usually followed by high fives and applauding some kind of macho accomplishment. And maybe this is something David told himself quietly for such great subterfuge. But... It's surprising that David didn't make the connection himself, that he was indeed the man in this story. David is so deep in denial and self-deception that he doesn't see how he so obviously is a rich man. I, of course, find it a little problematic that the story equates women with belongings, but modern-day feminism aside, the message is very clear. David had everything he could possibly want, including multiple wives and concubines at his beck and call. And Nathan tells him if he wanted anything more, God would have provided. Remember, the Lord is your shepherd in your own words, David. You lack nothing. And yet, he went ahead and did something that displeased Yahweh greatly. And we circle back to the question, which thing? Which thing was God talking about? And Nathan says in verse 9, Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. David used and abused the power and position God gave him to chase his own desires. And in so doing, he wronged a host of different people, including manipulating his enemies into killing an innocent man who was proving to be but an inconvenience to him. How cruelly and callously did he order Uriah to be killed? I mean, he sent the letter through Uriah himself. He had no regard for the shame he had brought on Bathsheba and the grief she bore upon hearing her husband had died. He shrugged off the death of the other soldiers in Uriah's unit who were collateral damage to David's plot. He didn't care that he made various people complicit in his scandal. He was so bent on burying his sins with a kind of tunnel vision that everyone else was disposable. Strangely enough, David had been in Uriah's shoes before when his predecessor and father-in-law, Saul, tried to kill him many, many times. And some of you may recall the story where Saul tried unsuccessfully to have David killed at the hands of the Philistines, just like David had Uriah killed at the hands of the Ammonites. He had become just as ruthless as Saul once had been toward him, and he didn't even recognize it. It's precisely what David was rebuking the imaginary rich man for doing. He did such a thing and had no pity. He felt no remorse for what he had done. And he might have even felt entitled to his actions as a king with limitless power. But it's only upon hearing Nathan's story 
that he is taken back to his beginnings and humbled by how far he had come and had fallen. He finally confesses his sin in verse 13, and we can read about the extent to which he felt the weight of his actions in Psalm 51. In verse 1 of Psalm 51, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. And notice he doesn't justify what he had done here. He doesn't list a bunch of things he did right in the past and thus he should be given a second chance. No, he appeals only to God's nature of unfailing love and great compassion because he realizes he doesn't deserve it at all. In verse 4, he writes, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Now, I could argue that, no dude, you actually sinned against a bunch of people, but ultimately his sins against others are also a sin against God. And moreover, David is acknowledging that the consequences for his sins, though harsh, are fair. Because if we continue reading in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we find out that David and Bathsheba's first child ends up dying. And the rest of David's story is fraught with tragedy. And David is saying, I deserve this. But in verses 10 through 12, he says something, and these are words that many of us are familiar with. He says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David, though he had been chosen because he was a man after God's own heart, has shown his humanity after all. He prays for a steadfast spirit, a willing spirit to sustain him. He's saying he wants to stay unwaveringly in God's grace because now having experienced how low he could go, he realizes that distance from God had been far too great and he was in no hurry to repeat this experience. And in verses 16 through 17, he says, You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Now he knows there is nothing he can do to fully atone for what he had done. He acknowledges that sacrifices and offerings are devoid of meaning, so what he offers instead is a full admission of his guilt. And finally, he rectifies the thing God had despised, the lack of repentance for his sin. Now, there might be a lot of things the scripture calls us to do. At the most basic level, we're reminded that we are each capable of unthinkable sins, and yet God doesn't stop loving us, which is baffling, really. But God's great love for sinners has always been the case. This is facts we know well, but what have we done with this information? Some of us have decided that we will keep on sinning, 
if nothing I do changes God's love for me, it's not really any incentive to live righteously and deprive myself of fun and pleasure. God knows who I am, and if he really did love me, he wouldn't need me to change, right? More of us are oblivious to the sins we're committing, which to me is more dangerous on some level because that indicates a serious lack of relationship with God. Because if you don't know God's word, how do we know that what we're doing is in fact sin? And in conjunction with that, we are so quick to point out the sin in others. We are filled with righteous anger when we see others do something we would never dream of doing. And they call themselves Christian. And they call themselves Sunday school teachers. They call themselves pastors. Shame, shame, shame. But you know what? Whenever we get into this mode, I implore you to hear the voice of the prophet Nathan saying, you are the man. Whatever wrong you see in others, you yourself, I myself am doing the same thing in a different way. So here's how I want to challenge us this week and generally moving forward. Have you been approaching your relationship with God as a list of don'ts? and living in perpetual fear of God's judgment each time you sin? I mean, I get it, because that's how most of us have been trained. And then when something bad happens, you automatically think God is punishing you. You know, there are many passages of scripture that say God did something severe to punish humans. And I am of the opinion that it was written that way because the thing that happened, like someone dropping dead, for example, was so sudden and inexplicable that it just had to be an act of God. But you know, God is not so petty. Because if he were, what would distinguish him from the many false gods and idols who are thought to act arbitrarily and as emotionally as humans? Sin has consequences naturally, and when they catch up to us, we need to stop blaming God for them. There are sins our consequences, and therefore our reckonings. So instead, we need to learn to have honest conversations with ourselves about how we can love God more. Ask yourself, is what I'm doing helping me grow closer to God or is it pulling me away? Because if you operate from that framework, you'll find a certain amount of freedom, which is the entire reason for Christ's sacrifice on the cross anyway. Because speaking of shepherding and shepherding metaphors, Jesus is described as both the good shepherd and the lamb of God. He is the one who loves his sheep and also the adored and precious lamb that God allowed the enemy to steal and slaughter on our behalf. So come before God with your broken and contrite heart. In humility and repentance, acknowledge that you are the man that is in dire need of God's mercy, but also you are the man and woman that God loves and will grant you that pure heart and steadfast spirit you ask for. And let's pray. God, as the psalmist wrote, 
I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. But sometimes we go down a sin spiral and can't find our way back to you. We hide our face from you as we hide our sin from the world, hoping that we don't get found out. But what is the point of hiding anything from you? You know it all and somehow you still love us unflinchingly and completely. So keep teaching us, God, on how we can better live our lives for you in ways that honor you and don't tarnish your name. And when we do mess up, remind us to run toward you in repentance and discover truly how great is your faithfulness and how generously you forgive. In Jesus' name, amen.